Well, I want to send you greetings uh, from First Baptist Upper Marlboro. We love the Garden Church, and we pray for you regularly. I, uh, I'm, I've been friends with Joel for a number of years, and I've been thankful to kind of partner in the ministry with him and for our churches to partner in the gospel ministry. And so it's so good to see uh, some of you meet some of you for the first time, and it is an honor and a privilege to be here with you this morning to bring God's Word uh, this morning. So thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, as Joel said, I'm here with my wife Katie, our two boys, and we, we've uh, loved our time here already this morning. So thank you so much for uh, the invitation. Now, when Katie and I, Katie and I lived in Chicago for seven years together. Um, we, we got married when we were in Chicago. We lived there for a number of, a number of years. Um, but before we got married, we were dating, and I was trying to convince her to marry me. And so when we were dating in Chicago, I planned a Saturday uh, bike ride from downtown Chicago all the way up to the, these botanical gardens. Uh, and it was a 30-mile bike ride. Now, I was not in a 30-mile bike ride type of shape, but we thought, you know what, it's a nice day. Well, let's push ourselves. Let's give it a shot. So we, we, we did it. We, we, we went up on this bike ride. We, we, we were going to go up to the botanical gardens to have lunch. And so we set out that morning, and by God's grace, we actually made it. Uh, our legs were tired. Our backs ached. We were hot and thirsty, but the botanical gardens were beautiful. We had a wonderful lunch. And then afterwards, our plan was to throw our bikes onto the train and take the train back downtown to where we each lived. Train came, and then I realized in that moment when the train pulled up that I had overlooked one important detail. Uh, you could always put your bike on the train in Chicago, but there's like one or two times a year where they don't allow bikes. This was one day. There was an air and water show downtown, and this was like one of the days in the year where they would not allow bikes on the train. So we were about to put the bikes on, and they said, nope. They turned us away, and we were stuck in the botanical gardens. And I remember looking at Katie, and she looked back at me, and she said, I don't know how, but you're going to find us a ride home. But there was no cabs. There was no way to get our bikes on the train. There was no way for us to re reach a, a friend to come pick us up. We had no options. And so our 30-mile bike ride, which we were already exhausted from, backs ached, knees sore, turned into a 60-mile bike ride. So what are you going to do? Well, we got back on the trail. And then once again, Katie looked at me exhausted and said, are you sure there is no way for us to hitch a ride back home? Have you looked at every option? I'm tired. Our legs are hurting. And so me, dating this wonderful woman, trying to think of a way to encourage her, I turned back to her and I said, very carefully, you know, this would be a lot easier if you just stopped complaining. <laughs> Listen. We're still married, 15 years of marriage, uh, but let's just say it was a long bike ride home and a very quiet bike ride home. The reality is, is that life often throws unexpected challenges our way, things that we weren't planning for, things that we couldn't see coming. And it could be something as small as just being stuck in a, a traffic jam and being frustrated by that. It could be uh, the, the crying infant that makes you exhausted by the next morning. 
Or it could be something as significant as trying to navigate your way through a global pandemic that you and I could not see coming, a pandemic that has taken hundreds of thousands of lives and left many people without work and turned our world upside down. I wonder what hardships you are facing this morning that you didn't see coming. I wonder how you have responded to those hardships. See, hardships are, are like a roadblock in our path. We were, we were headed from point A to point B. We were looking forward to getting to point B, and then there's a roadblock, there's a hardship, and, 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 and it's a block in our path to what we desire. And when we can't get to where we want to go, it leaves us discontent. So what can we do when we meet those roadblocks? Well, for, for most people, the very natural thing for us to do is complain. Complaining is almost as natural as breathing in our world. It's, it's what we do when we meet up with our friends. It's what we do when we come home from work. It's what we do when we go online to post something on social media. It, just, it feels good to get it off our chest. Have you been tempted to complain, to grumble this past week? Let me take a step further. Have you complained or grumbled this past week? And if, if we're honest, I think most of us are saying, yeah, I can think of something. <laughs> because it's not just the world that it's easy and natural to complain. It happens in our own hearts. And so if, if everybody seems to complain, is it really that big of a deal to grumble? Well, when we turn to Scripture, when we turn to God's Word, we find that complaining may be more dangerous than we first thought. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to open up with me to the book of Numbers. Or if you have a, 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 your phone or your electronic Bible, turn it on and turn with me to the book of Numbers. If you're new to the Bible, Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible. So you start with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Um, and we're going to look at Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. And uh, let me encourage you to keep your Bible open and follow along. We're actually going to read through the whole chapter and, and see what God has to say to us from the book of Numbers chapter 11. So because I'm dropping into this book, um, I want to give you a little bit of background. The book of Numbers is a book that actually records the history of God's people on their journey to the promised land. And along this journey, they land in Egypt uh, for a period of about a 430 years. They, they become slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And Pharaoh was, a, the, 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 was, a, was an oppressive ruler over the Israelites. As they grew in number, he enslaved them. So God in his mercy sends Moses. Moses comes to deliver God's people from slavery in Egypt, and they get out of Dodge. They, they, he sends the ten plagues. He overpowers the Egyptians, and they head east. And along the way, they, they stop. They're headed to the promised land, but they stop at Mount Sinai, where God would give them, his people, the Ten Commandments and other instructions to show them how to live as the people of God and what God is like as their king. That's where Numbers picks up in this story of them coming to the Promised Land. They're still at Mount Sinai, actually. And in the first ten chapters of the book of Numbers, God is preparing them for the next leg of their trip from Mount Sinai all the way into the Promised Land. They're almost there. 
but he's got some more instructions for them. And these chapters, chapters 1 through 10 of the book of Numbers, are filled with reminders of God's provision, of what he's done to provide for his people along the way. And so with, with the census in the beginning of the book, that's why it's called Numbers, we see God fulfilling his promise to make Abraham into a great nation. It's no longer a small family, a small tribe. Now we're talking about a lot of people. By this point, there are over 600,000 men who are ready to go to war, which means there are well over 2 million people in all, men, women, and children. God has provided. And God has provided not only people, he's kept his promise to Abraham to make them into a great nation, God has also provided them leadership through Moses. We know that God is providing them food and water, water from a rock, manna from heaven, in in order that they can eat in the midst of the desert. God has provided priests to aid them in their worship of God. And most importantly, Numbers 1-10 through reminds us that God gave His people His very presence to guide them through the wilderness. A pillar of fire by day, a pillar of cloud cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. God was literally with them, taking them into the land that He said, I'm promising you, I'm going to get you there. A land flowing of milk and honey. Chapter 10, verse 29, Moses tells his father-in-law, after reflecting all of his provision, come with us, come on, and we will treat you well. Why? For the Lord has promised good things to Israel. So you read Numbers 1 through 10, things are looking really good for the people of God. So how would God's people respond to all this provision, all this grace, all these good things? Well, that's where we pick up the story this morning in Numbers 11, verse 1. Look with me at God's word. Numbers 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and the Lord heard it. His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned down among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord. And the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. We'll stop there for a second. Now, the outline for this sermon this morning is not really much of an outline. I'm just going to give you the scenes of this story in Numbers 11. So I'm going to uh, use the scenes in the story as our outline. And I'll try to pause and highlight those scenes so you kind of know where we're at in the story. So in verses 1 through 3 is scene number 1. Verses 1 through 3 is scene number 1. And, and, and here's the scene. The people complain about what they have. Scene 1, the people complain about what they have. We're not told what hardships they had, but it's not hard to imagine this. If you are camping in the wilderness with 2 million people, you're going to have your challenges, right? You might, thought, you might have thought that your, your kind of day trip with your family wherever you went in the car was exhausting or difficult to kind of organize. Well, try organizing 2 million people in the middle of, middle of the wilderness. They're going to have their challenges. But nothing in the first 10 chapters, again, nothing prepares us, the reader, for a complaint. So it's a little bit of a surprise when we hear this complaining in verse 1. They've received mercy from God. They've received provision from God. They've received His goodness and His grace. And yet, three days in, and they're complaining. They're grumbling. That's easy to think, oh, those Israelites, right? 
But this is, it, it, it's, it's true for us, too. It can be the same for us. Something in life goes wrong. And the hardship grabs our attention. And all that we can see is the hard thing. The roadblock. And we forget all that we have. All that God has provided. All the grace and the mercy that we should be thankful for. Whatever the case, God's people, Numbers 11, they complain. And their complaint against God brings God's judgment. I think one of the the simple observations we make from verses 1 through 3 is that an important lesson in this chapter is the fact that God, this is what we learn about God, God is not indifferent towards evil. He hates it. God hates evil. To think and to assume that God is somehow indifferent to injustice, that somehow God is indifferent to oppression or to any sort of evil is to not believe that God is good. It's to think a lie about God that He is unrighteous. But friends, God is good. God is righteous. And here, we see God's goodness expressed in His judgment against a complaining, grumbling people. But that's not the only thing that's true about God. He is just, but He's also merciful. So not only did he, not only did we see his, his hatred toward evil break out with his fire on the outskirts of the camp, we also see his mercy in minimizing it. When the people cry out to God, Moses prays for them, Moses stands in the gap between them and their sin and a holy God, and their lives are mercifully spared by a merciful God. In scene one, then, we see that God is not indifferent to sin. Would this warning, would this warning be enough to deter the people of God from complaining again? Well, let's pick up the story in verse 4. Verse 4. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat! We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now, the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance was like bedellum. The people went out and gathered it and ground it in in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in its pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am, I, I am number 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Friends, the first time around the Israelites complain because of what they have. Here in scene number two, they complain about what they don't have. That's scene number two. They complain about what they don't have, namely, meat. Now, for over a year, God had gone with his people and every day provided them food, miraculous food called manna. And we're told a little bit about this manna. Each day they'd go out in the morning, and the dew, when the dew lifted off the ground, they would gather up the manna for food. It was a miracle every morning. We're, told what it, we're even told what it tasted like. It tasted like a, a pastry that was cooked in olive oil. So imagine tomorrow you go out, and it, 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 you wake up, you go outside your door, and it's raining down French pastries. Krispy Kremes. We'll, we'll say it tastes like Krispy Kremes, right? I imagine the first few weeks you go out and collect your manna, you'd be like, oh my goodness, this is a miracle, this is amazing. God's providing for us out of nothing. And each meal that you would eat, this manna, it would be like a, 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 a meal that would be filled with wonder and awe that God was providing for you. God was sustaining you in the desert when there was no food to eat. But that miracle... That happened one day would happen for a week and then in a month and then month after month for a whole year and it eventually would lose its luster. Then rather being filled with gratitude every meal, that manna became something that you presumed upon, something that you just expected, that you deserved, that God was supposed to do. Verse 4 introduces us to the rabble. The rabble is just another way of saying foreigners uh, that had come in, there, so as the Israelites are making their way to the promised land, there have been some people that joined them. Perhaps they had seen the ten plagues in Egypt, and they're like, let's go with these guys. Their God's doing something. And so this rabble are foreigners, most likely Egyptians, who were going with Israel on their journey. This rabble 
we're told, had a craving. Before long, that unmet craving turns into discontentment. Before long, that discontentment turns into a complaint. And I want us to notice how complaining usually does not stay isolated. Complaining is like a virus. It it becomes contagious. It spreads. So you can imagine one or two foreigners speaking to an Israelite. You know, I'm really glad of this manna, but we've been eating this manna for a year. Is this all that God's going to do for you? I mean, doesn't he care about you? I mean, we saw the ten plagues he did in Egypt, and now all he's giving you is this manna? Doesn't he care? Ah, I remember back in Egypt, the good food. Mmm. You know, the, the leeks, the cucumbers, the meat, the onions. Mmm. Remember those days? Those were the good days. And soon, that complaint would be planted in the heart of the people of God. That complaint would then spread among them. God is God. Why don't we have meat? If God was God, He could surely give us meat, and all we've had over the past year is this manna. Why is God holding out on us? Maybe the rabble's right. Is God good? Doesn't He love us? Manna. The manna that was once a sign of God's goodness towards the people had become the grounds to complaining and to question His goodness. And before long, every family, we're told, was complaining. So if God was angry at the first complaint, now we're told this time that He was exceedingly angry. So as we look at this scene too, I want us to look at two different parties that that Moses, who's writing Numbers, helps us to highlight. First, he kind of wants us to look at the Israelites and then to look at Moses. So we'll look at the Israelites first, and then we'll look at Moses. One question we need to look, when we look at the Israelites, one question we need to ask is, why is complaining such a big deal? If everybody does it, why is complaining such a big deal? Especially here in Numbers 11. Why does the Israelites complaining provoke such a response from God Almighty? Well, look again at verse 19. I think we see an explanation in verse 19. God promises to give them meat. He says, you shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils. That's a lot of meat. And becomes loathsome to you. Why would God do this? Why would God give them so much meat that it comes out their nostrils and, it, and, they, and they begin to hate the meat that he gives? Well, the text answers us. Because you have rejected the Lord. There's the reason. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Here's what I think is happening. Their craving for meat had become so strong that their craving sat on the throne of their life. They kicked God off and they put their craving in charge of their lives instead of God. They were making decisions based on whether or not it would meet their craving. And in so doing, they were rejecting God. They were rejecting His leadership. Friends, that's why grumbling and complaining is so offensive. That's why it's so rebellious against God. 
given the option of God or a plate of meat, the Israelites are saying, we'll take the meat. In this moment in the story of redemption, in their view, God had less value than a hamburger. Sinful, friends, listen, sinful desire blinds us from reality. It blinds us. It makes us think, mm, that hamburger is better than God. No, it's not. But that's what they were thinking. And it's exactly this blindness is what we see happening in the text. Look, look back at verse 5. Do you notice that detail in verse 5? We remember, they're looking back on the good days, we remember the fish that we ate where? In Egypt. At no cost. <laughs> also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. No cost? Are you kidding me? You were slaves. Egypt killed your children. They forced you into ruthless slavery. They beat you without mercy. No cost? Those fish that you're craving, oh, they came at great cost. But that's, that's what desire does. Unchecked desire. You let desire take over your heart, your desires, and then it will give you a selective memory. In that, we see the momentary pleasure that temptation promises us, but we become blind to the poison that it's laced with that will kill us. That's how temptation works. It's the hook inside the juicy worm that lies to the fish. Free meal, and it hides the hook that will kill you. So, friends, this is not just them. What's your Egypt? What's your Egypt? What are you tempted to look back on and think, oh, those were the good old days. It was really good back then. What are you tempted to complain about? If only I had what? If o life would be good. If, if, if I was God running the show, I would give myself this. I would give them this. If only I had more money, if only I was more healthy, if, I, if only I was more beautiful, if only I was more successful, you, how would you fill in that blank? Where are you kind of pushing against God's providence in your life right now? Now friends, don't be mistaken by what I'm asking you. Meat, meat's not the problem. There's nothing wrong with eating meat. It's not wrong to have an appetite for meat. So don't use number 11 as a way to lobbyist, as a lobbyist for vegetarians. That's not what he's saying here. The problem is not the meat. The problem is not even the desire for the meat. The problem is in our heart. The problem is in what a sinful heart does with desire. We take good things like meat and we turn them into something that's ultimate. You can take anything that's good, your family, your job, your health, your vacation, you can turn that into an ultimate thing that you serve instead of God. You've got an idol on hand. And when we do, we end up putting desire in the driver's seat of our life. And like the people of God in Numbers 11, we reject God. So what should we do then? Because hardship will come. You might be facing a hardship right now. Maybe life's good right now, but hardship will come. So what do we do as the people of God when we face hardship? 
I mean, the text is the text saying we shouldn't complain? Should we just suck it up, pull up our bootstraps, and grin and bear it? Is that what this text is teaching? Or, or and when we flip ahead in the Bible, in our Bibles, we go to the book of Psalms. Hold on, the psalmist often complains. And in the Psalms, the complaint is not looked upon as sinful. The complaint is actually looked at as, here's what you do. <laughs> Psalm 55, verse 17, Evening and morning at noon, I utter my complaint and moan. And there's no rebuke against that complaint in Psalm 55. So why is it okay to complain to God in the Psalms, but here in Numbers 11, complaint is seen as wicked? What's going on there? Well, in short, Charles Spurgeon said it really well. There's a big difference between complaining to God versus complaining about God. The psalmist always complains to God. That's what we should do. When we complain about God, we're saying, ah, you got this one wrong, God. You're doing it wrong. If I was God, I'd do it differently. I'd do it better. Big difference between complaining to God, good, versus complaining about God, bad. And I think in the New Testament, we have a, a supreme example of that in Jesus. Shortly before Jesus went to the cross, he was, he was praying fervently in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me. So Jesus looks at what's about to happen, and he is filled with sorrow. He's about to take the cup of God's wrath for our sin and drink it down to the very bottom. And he's saying, ah, I don't want that. Is there any other way, God? Can you change my circumstances? I don't really, I, if, if there's another way, let's do it another way. But here's the difference with Jesus. The desire for an, a different way, the desire for an easier way did not rule Jesus. He makes his request to his father. And then the Father says, there's no other way. Yeah. So Jesus says, willingly, okay. Yeah. Not as I will, but as you will. I trust you. Yeah. I'm in. That's the example that we're called to follow, friends. When you are hurting, when we are hurting, when we have a legitimate desire for something, we, like Jesus, should pray. We should ask God for that. Can you change this? Can you, can you give us a building? Can you, can, you, can you protect me from getting sick? Can you get me a job? Can you... Can, Ask him for anything. God invites us to come boldly in Christ Jesus, to come boldly and make our requests known in our time of need. And so we should come. God, we have this desire. We have this need. And so we're asking you to provide. We're asking you to change this circumstance. But God, if you say no, if you say not yet, if your answer is that this is your provision for us right now, then we also pray that you would help us to be okay with that. You know what you're doing. You know what's good. And so we pray that you would help us to trust you, even if it's hard. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is the supreme example of that. So in scene one, they complain about what they have. In scene two, they complain about what they don't have. And we see, first of all, this idea in the Israelites. But what about, what about Moses? 
We want to look at Moses in the second scene as well. Look again at verse 10. Verse 10, Moses heard the people of every family wailing, at each at it, the entrance of his tent, and the Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. So we've seen the perspective of what does this look like from the people's perspective. Now we're looking at from, okay, put yourself in Moses' shoes. You're, you're trying to lead this two million people through the wilderness to the promised land, and you're responsible for these people. How does he feel? Well, he says Moses was troubled. <laughs> troubled, I think, is kind of the tip of the iceberg for Moses. He was probably standing there, not able to hear himself think because there are over two million people complaining to him. All eyes are on him. We need meat. You're the leader. Do something about it. They wanted him to make it happen. But there's no Burger King in the wilderness. Now, the goal that God had given Moses, the goal here is to get his people into the promised land. But he's overwhelmed. Verse 14, he says, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. Friends, this is, Moses is being honest about his predicament. He's not just like, I'm having a bad day. He is going through a stretch of discouragement, dark days. It's so overwhelming that Moses is ready to take his own life. He can't see a way out. Friends, the burdens, when the burdens of life are overwhelming, and we're desperately looking for an escape, take heart. Moses, M- Moses being honest here is helpful for us, I think. It's meant to be an encouragement. Moses was a godly man. Very humble, very patient. He loved God. He trusted God. And yet, despite how godly Moses was, he still went through seasons of discouragement. He still went through seasons of doubt. So if you're, if you're sitting here in this church today and you think, oh, Christians don't doubt like that. Christians don't have dark seasons of the soul like that. Yes, they do. Moses did. So if that's where you're at, if you are going through a season of doubt or depression or discouragement, if you, if you like Moses, think, I can't see a way out, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. Christians suffer like this. It's not whether or not you have that discouragement or depression, it matters what you do with it. So friends, if you find yourself in a dark season like Moses, here's my encouragement. Don't go it alone. First of all, go to the Lord with it. Be honest with him about what you're facing. And then talk to one of your pastors after this service or sometime as soon as you can to let them know about what you're going through. Talk to a trusted friend or family member in this church who will walk with you, who will walk alongside with you and help you to go to God in that dark season just like Moses is. And here's the encouragement in the last part of this text. The Lord's hand is not too short. It's not, like, it's not like he can reach out, but you're not just beyond the grasp of his help. His arm is not too short. He can reach out. He has the, the resources, the power, the authority, the mercy, the grace to help you. Amen. And one of the means of his grace is in this room. 
It's the people sitting next to you. It's the pastors that he's given this church. It's the leaders in this church. It's the, it's the, the Christian brothers and sisters. So lean on those people in the dark night of the soul. Seeing one, they complain about what they have. Seeing two, they complain about what they don't have. And we're seeing that complaining is offensive because it's a rejection of God. When we complain about God and how he's doing things, we're rejecting his rule. By the time we reach verse 24 of Numbers 11, we're at the climax of the plot, the climax of the story. Everything has been moving up to this point in verse 24. They're on the way to the promised land, but the people are trapped by their sinful cravings. They want to go back to Egypt. God's angry. There's no one to intercede because Moses is overwhelmed. And yet, church, in spite of all this, God has promised to get these people to the promised land. How's he going to do it? Verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the spirit rested on them, and they were among those registered. But they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and the assistant of Moses from his youth said, My Lord, Moses, stop them! Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. And the Lord put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp. And about two cubits above the ground, and the people rose all that day and all that night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kriboth, Kibroth Hatavah, because they, there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatavah, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and there they remained at Hazaroth. All right. In the third and final scene, we see this. God responds. That's scene three. God responds. And it's here we find out how God will get his people to the promised land. How's he going to get his people to the promised land? Well, it's not because they're an obedient people. (laughs) They're grumbling. It's not because of impeccable wise leadership that's spotless from Moses. He's overwhelmed. How is he going to get his people to the promised land? He will do it because God is faithful. God is faithful to keep his word. And part of what we see in this last scene here is that in keeping his word to provide meat, we see his justice. And in keeping his word to provide help for Moses, 
we see his mercy. So we see his justice, and we see his mercy in this final scene. So let's, let's, let's look first of all at his provision of his meat. We're told that God causes a wind to drive a huge flock of quail, it's like a little chicken, into the Israelite camp. And we're told that there was so much quail that you, had, you, could, you could go a whole day's walk in any direction and there would be quail. And it, so if you imagine a day's walk would be about 12 to 15 miles, that means that there would be about 400 square miles of quail three feet high. That's a lot of quail. You can imagine feathers flying everywhere, birds squawking, kind of a mass chaos of birds and people running, running around catching all this quail uh, for, for dinner. We're also told that no one caught less than 10 homers, which would be about 55-gallon barrel full of quail. That's a lot of quail. That's, that's 55-gallon of quail per person. Friends, do you remember what God had said earlier about the quail? Verse 19. Verse 19. You shall eat not just for one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. They had craved meat. They had demanded meat. And God gave them what they wanted. God gave them what they demanded. So they gather up their quail, they eat. They had previously thought, oh man, if we just had meat out in this wilderness, we'd be happy. Life would be good. But they were wrong. Quail tasted good for a while, I suppose, but soon that quail wasn't enough. So they'd eat more quail and more quail and more quail. Still not satisfied. There's an emptiness inside them and they'd eat more meat and more meat. But no matter how much they ate, they weren't satisfied and they ate so much that it came out their nostrils. The thing they thought in their own minds would satisfy them could not. In fact, they'd end up loathing the very thing they thought would satisfy them. And notice where the craving led them. Verse 34. They named the place Kibroth Harava. In the Hebrew, that means the grave of craving. Friends, one implication of Numbers 11 is the way that it helps us understand our trials and hardships. Sometimes it's natural for us to assume that a life of comfort and ease where nothing goes wrong and everything goes our way, that must be the sign of God's blessing. And friends, listen. If God gives you that season, thank God for that. But that sign, uh, you know, that, that easy life is not always a sign of God's blessing. We need to learn from Numbers 11 and take a, a, a heed to the warning that this text provides us. Sometimes getting what we desire, getting what we want, sometimes that is God's judgment. The Apostle Paul actually unpacks this more in Romans 1. If you want to look at this later in this afternoon, look at Romans 1. But in Romans 1 it says, if we, if we demand our desires, if we demand God to give us our desires, if we assume that we know what's best for us, 
better than God if we stiff-arm the Holy Spirit long enough. No, God, I want this. No, God, I want this. No, 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 I want this. I deserve this. I need this. I can't live without this. And God's saying, no, not yet. And we say, no, 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 I know what's best for me. And we stiff-arm God long enough. God in His judgment can give us over to our desires. God can give us what we want. He can give us so much of what we want, it comes out of our nostrils and the thing that we thought would satisfy us, we begin to loathe. I think this has a lot to say to us today because our culture tells us today that the cause of our unhappiness is these external rules that hinder our desires. The world assumes that we're all basically good and we just need to let our desires run rampant. And if we just let, get rid of the rules, get rid of the external moral standards, then you'd be happy. They say the way to be happy is to ditch the external moral codes, like the Bible. Ditch the moral codes on sexuality. Ditch the moral codes on what the Bible says about money or family or marriage or sex or your job or your thought life. Ditch those things. That's why you're unhappy, the world says. Go where your desires tell you to go. But church, listen. That's not true. The, world, the world's lying to us. Our flesh is lying to us. The Bible is telling us the truth. God is telling us the truth. God knows what's best for you. You don't. I don't. We don't know what's best for us. God does. And so trials, they're not fun. They can be painful. They can be earth-shattering. But here's, what, here's one lesson for us. If God uses the trials or the hardships that you're going through as a sort of spiritual speed bump to get you to pause, to reflect, to come to Him, to turn away from your sin and to trust in Christ before we end up in the grave of craving, then that trial is a gift. Don't, child of God, do not despise the trials that God brings into your life. Psalm 119, 71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted. Who says that? It was good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes. Friends, submitting to God, submitting to God when He calls us to deny our sinful desires, Submitting to God when He calls us to follow Him over and against what the world is telling us is not easy. Going with God, submitting to Him, obeying Him like that requires trust. So if you're not yet a, a Christian, if you're here visiting with a friend, you're listening online, and you're not a follower of Jesus, you might be asking, okay, I hear you. But how do I know that he's trustworthy? You're saying to deny myself. You're saying to give my life to him. How do I know this God of yours is trustworthy? That's a good question. But if we see God's justice in giving them what they want, to giving them over to their desires, we also see God's mercy in this text in helping Moses lead these people to the destination. And it's in seeing God's mercy in this text that helps us to know why we can trust him. Moses, remember, he's got a big task, leading two million people to the promised land. And, and he was a godly man. Moses was a godly man. 
but he wasn't perfect. And Moses admits in Numbers 11, I can't carry the burden of these people. I can't do this. And it's here that we're reminded that because of their sin, God's people need someone to intercede for them. We need someone to intercede for us. Someone to stand in the gap between us, our sin, and a holy God. Because our sin, a holy God, means His wrath is coming. That's what we deserve from a righteous God. Moses says, I can't, I can't stand in the gap like that. I'm, I got my own sin. I, I, this burden is too big for me. I can't bring these people to where I, they need to go. But that's where Numbers 11, when we look at Moses, Moses points us to the fact that we need a better prophet. And that better prophet is promised all throughout the Old Testament. It was read about in the assurance of pardon this morning in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the prophet says, but he, this coming prophet, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. Moses couldn't stand in the gap between a holy God and a sinful people. We can't stand in the gap between a holy God and sinful people because we are all sinful. And so Isaiah 53 is pointing forward not to Moses, not to, another, not to some other prophet, but to Jesus, the prophet, who will stand in the gap. Though you and I and every human being has sinned and we have fallen short of God's glory, Jesus came 2,000 years ago fully God and fully man. And He lived the perfect life that we have failed to live. And He died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin. He died on the cross as our substitute. He was crushed, not for His iniquities. He had none. He was crushed for our iniquities. And on the third day, Christ got up from the dead. He rose again from our salvation. Friends, that's good news. And it can be good news for you if you trust in Him. If you hear this good news and you say, okay, I'll think about it, but don't act upon that, don't respond, it's not good news yet. You're still in your sin. God's wrath is coming. But if you hear Jesus, the news about Jesus, if you hear that as good news, and you turn from your sin, you turn from your self-reliance, I can't do this. I need somebody to stand in the gap for me. And you understand that the Bible's telling you the truth that Jesus is the gap the gap filler. And you trust in Him. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be reconciled to God. You will be brought into His family. You'll be in Christ. Do that today, I pray. In conclusion, one of the tragic ironies, I think, in this text is that the Israelites who were complaining about meat They were just around the corner. They couldn't see it because their cravings made them just focus on one thing. They couldn't see it. But friends, the promised land was right around the corner. They're at Mount Sinai. The promised land is just around the corner. This land flowing with milk and honey, this land that God had promised them is just around the corner. And they couldn't see it because of their craving. Friends, today, we know that Jesus came first 2,000 years ago to deal with our sin But he's coming again. He's coming a second time to take those who trust in him to the promised land. Not in Canaan. Not in Jerusalem. 
but to the new heavens and the new earth, where there's no more sickness or sorrow or pain or death. That is our hope. And it is a hope so glorious that we can know the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8.18 Jesus has promised he's coming again. And Jesus, friends, is coming soon. We're not promised this afternoon. We're not promised tomorrow. He's coming soon. The promised land is just around the corner. So our hardships, our trials, our our suffering in this life may be unbearable. I don't know what you're going through. But the promised land is just around the corner. We sang about it this morning, about holding on to his hand. He will get us to the end. So church, hang in there. Hold on to him. He will hold you fast. And make it afresh today to trust in him. Lean on each other. Trust in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this church family. What a joy to look out and see this, this, the, these believers in Baltimore, many who I'm meeting for the very first time, and yet I have more in common with them, brothers and sisters in Christ, than I do with my own biological family. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for your promise that you will get us home. Lord, I thank you that that you are patient with us in our complaining. I thank you that you have provided a sacrifice for us in our own sin, that we can be reconciled to you. Lord, I, I pray that, that, that this, I pray for the Garden Church, Lord, that they, would be, that they would continue to be a group of people who share each other's burdens, that they, would, that they would not forsake gathering together like this, that they would stir each other up to love and good deeds until you bring us home until you bring us to that promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Bring us there, we pray, for your glory. Bring us there for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.